Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Anas Algomathi. Anas is the founder and director general of the Tripoli-based Sadek Institute. The Institute conducts qualitative and quantitative field research across East, West, and South Libya. Our conversation was recorded on Monday evening, 18th of September. And as you'll hear from Anas, the situation in Libya is desperate. Please consider making a donation to support the Libyan people. The British Red Cross and UNICEF are just two of several organizations accepting donations. Dennis, um, welcome to the podcast and, and thanks so much for taking the time to to speak with me. Can, can I ask you, first of all, the situation as you know it in Derna uh, now and and just going forward in the next few days, what what the outlook is well it has been a tumultuous last week to say the least i mean what ensued on september 11th wasn't just a calamity it was an exposure of the criminal negligence and this facade of security and stability that often authoritarian regimes like to play up there were reports in the week before of a storm that had been moving through Bulgaria, through Greece and through Turkey, that this would be an extreme weather incident that would lead to a lot of rainfall. The authorities in eastern Libya and the city of Derna failed to monitor that flow into the dams. They haphazardly warned portions of the neighborhoods inside Derna to evacuate on the day before, and then the the very same day enforced a lockdown, not only through their official pages on social media like Facebook, but also now as it's being revealed on social media of people filming the LNA patrolling and the security forces patrolling neighborhoods with their guns out, telling people to remain indoors. And so what ensued was the gradual filling over hours and hours of these two dams that should hold a million and five million cubic meters of water, but swelled up to estimates of anywhere from 20 to 115 million cubic meters of water. And it's not the volume alone that is, you know, astonishing. It's the level of pressure that that would mount on those two dams. And when they exploded, there are estimates now online of people putting the fragments of this entire episode together, but it unleashed a blast that had a force, if not equal to, but then surpassed the atomic bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. That's why we're not looking at just floodwaters that took away the homes of people in eastern Libya. It took away their lives, it took away the infrastructure. It was like a post-apocalyptic scene when people were viewing the video footage on the day after and it took time for those images to come out because the city went dark the city has gone entirely dark in terms of its telecoms and the light standoff and now it's being slowly revealed that anywhere between 3000 to 4000 to maybe up to 25000 people may have been killed in what happened and that's a quarter of the population at the highest estimates we're still trying to figure out what those numbers are because there's a lot of politics behind the chaos of 
the different organizations, the Libyan Red Crescent that is doing that standing job, Libyan volunteers that have come from every corner of the country, but also on top of them, the very same individuals that were criminally negligent um, in the days leading into and were supposed to be in control of Dedna, they are now in control of this rescue and relief effort. And as official tolls were moving towards 11,000 on the fifth and sixth day, once the government and authorities in eastern Libya started to put out very slick PR moves on the part of their own communication teams, they just dragged the number down to 3,000. So there's a lot of confusion, but there's also yeah. a lot of camouflage when it comes to those numbers. Yeah, confusion and, and camouflage. But regardless of the numbers, 3,000, 11,000, possibly 20,000, Libya is a country with a small population, uh, what, 7 million people. Everyone in that country and, and outside the country in the diaspora will be affected by this. Will know some in their immediate family. Will know will have lost friends. Uh, I believe you're in that situation as well. It, it's extraordinarily devastating and painful for the entire population of Libya. It is. People had warned of this before in the town of Dadna. They had been warning that the dams themselves were creaking. There is a tribe that lives under the dam, the Shawaha tribe, that is now likely to have been completely wiped out. And that tells you about the way in which this went down. You're right to point out that it's not a numbers game. There's something deeper at play. There's a tragic number of family trees that have been wiped out by this. The social fabric has been ravaged by what has just happened. A social fabric that you pointed out is intimately connected to all corners of Libya, particularly the west of Libya, where you have um, different tribes and different uh, portions of the population that are linked to suburbs of Tripoli, like Tajura, uh, to places in central Libya towards Masrata. It's 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 of a devastation that can't be counted in numbers and it should never be so. Um, it is part of what happens in the aftermath of such a tragedy and, and such a negligent tragedy at that. But it's the way in which this has connected and galvanized not only the sympathy of so many Libyans and, and, and their actions as a result of that from them coming through the Faza'a movement, the movement of, that sparked all of this aid and volunteering and a beautiful testimony to how united Libyans have always have always been, uh, and I've never doubted that for a moment. But amidst all of that, there's something to be said about the way that this city and its inhabitants may never recover. Where there are stories that are still coming out, and it's always difficult in the you know the fog of tragedy, not only just of war, but there are reports coming out from very credible um, activists and journalists in eastern Libya that someone committed suicide yesterday and said, I've got no one left. There are families and friends of mine that have called me up and, and just said, I don't know what to do. I don't know where anyone is. I was, we were trying to organize um, a translator for the Spanish International Rescue Team. And a friend of mine said, I know who I'll call. And then he paused and said, he's not here anymore. And it tells you about the way in which this is going to affect people yeah. in a way that they never imagined and they never imagined could ever happen. This is a collective suffering. It's a collective trauma. Um, I'm reeling like everyone else inside and I would be reeling whether or not these are relatives and loved ones and friends that, family friends that raised us in the UK, they should never have been put in this situation, but no one should have been put in that situation. And it's sad. It's, it's at a level of sadness that I don't think, uh, I ever thought I'd have to comprehend, but this is, this is not about me and this is not about 
my connections to those people. It's I'm connected to every single person there in the same way that I think all of us should be in moments like this because there's often a tendency to, you know, there's a tendency in all this political analysis to just use neutral, drab language, hold up the mirror and say, look at this side said that and look at this side said this and look at the numbers. There are people there, their names, their families, there were dreams, there were, you know, there were good people, there were great people. Yeah, marvellous and heroic and, and as you say, wonderful people. You've done a very necessary job on us to expose some of the lies, the appalling lies that the the haftars are are pushing out. Uh, there was it's grotesque, really. Uh, I saw I saw a clip that you had uh, pushed out. Uh, Saddam claiming with his eyes moving, you know, from one side to the other that that. Uh, people had been warned and they'd chosen to stay in place. I mean, talk a little bit about that side of it and 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 how you're exposing some of these really awful lies. Well, you know, to go to this, I think you have to look at the, the LNA and just understand what it is. This was not, it's a self-styled military run by a family enterprise of three sons and a father who essentially have created a, a machine that will take years for academics to truly understand because they're building on the back of a machine that Gaddafi built, the Jamahiriya, a, a way in which, you know, it was a divide and conquer machine, but in the 21st century and really now in 2023, it's, a, it's an intelligence apparatus that isn't just pervasive, it's very insidious. You know, you, you, you see the way in which they're communicating and they're seeing this as, they're seeing this as their lemons and lemonade moment. You know, you have Sadiq Haftar, the, the poet son of of, uh, of Khalifa, who has travelled to the European Parliament to launch a presidential campaign um, called the New Rebuild of Libya and the New Libya. And it, you just scratch your head and you think, what's so new about it? Your family have been wrecking carnage on that country since 1969, so over half a century. And then you look at Saddam Haftar, who was interviewed by Sky News um, and was brought with a... Um, uh, well, the Sky News team actually just bumped into him. Um, I spoke to their team um, and know them very well, and they said we just bumped into him on the you know on the street driving, and we wanted to ask him questions. And, and Alex Crawford does an outstanding job of just asking very basic questions. You know, there are a lot of people that are saying that this could have been prevented. What is your answer to that? And he looks at her in the eyes and tries to look like he doesn't understand. But this is someone who speaks English. This is someone whose father was in the United States for 20 years, someone that yeah. was raised and educated yeah. in Egypt. The charade, the, the belief that they can kind of get away with this. And it's it's interesting to see how this machine now operates. I mean, Sky News has said, you know, they were taking them across different parts of the city, eager to do a PR campaign. And it's just, it's testimony to the, the indictment that on the very same day that the UN has actually called out the alarm and sounded the alarm on two other dams, in Benghazi, that these are individuals that are traveling across the country, traveling across the world, trying to seek the next chapter of the Haftar dynasty. It's, it's appalling. Haftar, will he be able to use this terrible tragedy uh, the way that Assad used the earthquake, uh, you know, to, to actually bolster his position in, if, if not within Libya, amongst the international community? Will he be able to to do that? I think it's difficult because when you think of the earthquake that wrecked havoc on 
Turkey and Syria, that was, you could argue, that was Mother Nature, that was an act of God. You know, it takes seconds for it to happen. And whilst there is always going to be and there should be rightful criticism about the response and how quick the response is, the actual event itself was an act of God. And I think when you look at what happened in eastern Libya, this was no act of God. This was man-made in the entirety of it, in the lead up to it and in the aftermath of this. So when you look at history, yes, I think it does have an uncanny way of repeating itself. And the way that Assad orchestrated the Perth, you know, the post-earthquake um, disaster was a masterclass and something that he's done and exploited even since the time of ISIS and the rise of ISIS in 2014. So it worked for him. I mean, it's kind of not really working for Haftar in every single way because today we can see, or rather in the last few days, we've seen um, protests emerge in Dadna. Um, and there is something different about this. I mean, something entirely different about the way in which Libyans are responding to it. I mean, you know, there was a before Tripoli and after Tripoli in, a, in the war in 2019, but Dadna is different. Was, Dadna is... It's, it's circumstances have galvanized the Libyan population. They're now demanding accountability and demanding um, justice. And I think when we're on the subject of Haftar, you know, Libyans want to bring him to justice but operate within a fractured political system, not of their own making, but of the political classes making. But it's been propped up by the international community in many ways. Not only member states like Russia, the United Arab Emirates and Egypt that have bolstered Haftar. Over the years, other European countries have, have done the same. When you come to April 4th, 2019, the Trump administration, John Bolton himself, gave a green light to Haftar, who then used you know, Russian mercenaries on that campaign. So it's almost like it's galvanized the worst of the international community. Haftar's already under investigation by the ICC for war crimes for the last war. I don't know what, you know, what this one would look like, but the numbers here, at the very least, is almost genocidal. So it's kind of hard to think that he can get out of it. But he's been getting out of it for over half a century. This is someone that hasn't just waged one coup. He's waged multiple over half a century. This isn't someone that has worked for one state. He's worked for multiple states. And it's kind of an endemic issue that is really not of, you know, we often say, well, the Libyans, the Libyans, can they do it? I mean... Libyans didn't create a Khalifa Haftar. I mean, not the man that has come to rain down havoc on Tripoli and Benghazi and Dadna and countless other cities. That was, you know, that was Khalifa Haftar, who's probably his own sole intention is to fight into the last mercenary. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and the Sadak Institute's Anas al Kumathi. The situation in Libya is desperate. Please consider making a donation to support the Libyan people. The British Red Cross and UNICEF are just two of several organizations accepting donations. You mentioned the backers, the, the Russians, the Egyptians, but it's the Emiratis, you know, who have really been his strongest and most useful backers. Do you think they'll continue to, to back him, given the awfulness of what he's just been responsible for? Well, like I said about this kind of Orwellian information space, how they're trying to do things both on the surface, they do a lot under the surface. And I think this is where, you know, the Emiratis and particularly the Egyptians and the intelligence apparatus and countless other mercenaries, whether they be Russia's Wagner Group or Eric Prince's Blackwater, 
Um, you know, they have all been involved with Haftar. And we know this because we've pieced it together through open source media, through outstanding um, investigative reporting and, and journalism. But the UAE has never claimed to have given a single bullet to Haftar. So when we have to comprehend the UAE's position on Haftar, we have to know that first, this is not an open relationship, it's one in the shadows. The second is that we have to understand the depth and the length of that relationship. I mean, the LNA and, and the Haftar dynasty, are, they're not just a fleeting interest. They represent a very deep and very intricate web of investments that span from Libya to Sudan with the oil, sm- the, 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 the gold smuggling that has been coming out through the Wagner Group. It's an alliance and a strategic positioning that spans a decade, and it goes beyond just this family. It's about what it's worth. I mean, for the UAE, this is something that is at the heart of the Arab Spring. For them, I mean, the idea that Libya could become a oil-producing um, democracy is a fear that is existential. A democratic Libya that is flush with oil wealth, where people elect a transparent government, where that government enforces stringent anti-corruption laws, holds its officials to account, would not only have saved the lives of Libyans you know, in Dadna, but it would have made the lives of countless other Libyans incredibly, I mean, in an, in an immeasurably way would make it better. But when you look at the other authoritarian regimes, particularly like the UAE, a democratic and accountable and prosperous Libya, it could inspire their own people. And all it takes, and the Arab Spring taught us this, all it takes is one person to stand up. And then everyone starts to look at the at the relationship between the governor and the governed. And that relationship has not improved over the last decade. It's gotten much, much worse. So I don't think that they're going to necessarily change the relationship. I mean, there was often talk about them courting Abdul Hamid the Beba in Tripoli, and that's nothing new. They did the very same thing with Fayez Sarraj, his predecessor, until they literally unleashed havoc on that city on April 4th, 2019. And what was telling about the way that Fayez Sarraj at the time, in his first uh, media, or I think his second media interview, he said, Haftar stabbed me in the back. That doesn't sound like someone that was attacked, you know, because he was in conflict with him. It sounds like he was attacked because he was in cahoots with him. And I think Abdul Hamid the Beba might have to worry himself about making friends with strange bedfellows like, like Haftar, because they weren't just attacked by after they had drones rained down on them from the UAE, Russian soldiers and, and mercenaries, you know, entering into the suburbs of Tripoli. That's the cost of, of dealing with such individuals in such states. So I think I don't see the, the, the relationship changing with Haftar. I think it's always going to stay in the shadows. Right now, Anas, in, in the immediate, but also in, in, in the middle term, if I can put it that way, what what from your perspective, needs to happen for the people of Dana, for the Libyan people who, as you said earlier, everyone is suffering. What what can happen? What needs to happen? Well, the focus undeniably has to be on humanitarian aid and the rehabilitation for the almost half of the population that has been displaced by this. I mean, but in parallel, you need to talk about governance and a shift in governance because it's not about painting a utopian picture for tomorrow it's about the the structures of governance these authoritarian structures and military structures of governance that are not only criminally negligent and led to this disaster 
but are choking the response. I mean, I have friends of mine who are journalists that are now in Benghazi and have been blocked from getting into Dana. I have friends of mine who have made it into Dana and were pulled away from the protests that happened several days ago. I mean, this is the nature of, of this kind of bizarre moral compass or lack of a moral compass when you have war criminals, incompetent war criminals at that, steering the ship. Many more are dying. I mean, there are people that have had their houses fallen over at this point, and that is imp- impeding impeding the uh, the aid intervention and the work of the international community at a time where it's really important. I mean, as for the medium term, they're going to have to build, obviously, resilient infrastructure, but that's a given. I mean, that's going to happen. You can't rebuild the lives of those people because they will never, you can't take the blood, you can't take those bodies and bring them back to life. What are you going to do with those children? Those children that don't have parents anymore, they need psychological support. They're going to need the kind of support that no matter how nice the new buildings are in Derna, how nice the new roads are, they will never bring them back. And I think for that, you need to have justice. And this is where the international community have to take charge of this and start taking it seriously. I mean, anyone who shakes hands and tries to empower these individuals that have been around now, as I said, for not only half a century, but have wreaked havoc over Libya's political transition over the last decade, they need to understand that this is costing the lives of Libyans. And it's, you know, as I said, there are other dams in the country. There are other, it's not about the dams alone, but it's, it's a damning indictment when you have to use dams to say, look, please, you know. I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't know what else to say, you know, and I mean that on a personal note. What else are you supposed yeah. to say? Are you supposed to say, well, he's a war criminal. He's stolen billions of, of dollars from the central bank. He brought in Russian mercenaries who are, you know, brutalizing Ukraine. And the world has drenched the Ukrainian flag on every single Facebook profile in the Western world. When the Wagner Group have done the same and more in, in Western Libya, and they're still in Benghazi tonight. The Wagner Group has yes, got a, hot, a war in bed tonight. They're not, they're not worried about floodwaters. And Saddam Haftar is meeting with the Russian Deputy Minister of Defense when he should be out there spending the $2 billion that he just got with, with no strings attached and giving it to the people of Dedna who don't have any food, who don't have any shelter and have no money tonight. It's, a, it's astonishing. What, what are you supposed to say? You know, and you put your finger on something I think really important, which is the governance issue. And you've got these authoritarian regimes which have been backed by the Emiratis, backed by the Saudis. They do not want to see democracy. They want to see these warlords, these dictators in place. COP28 is coming up. This enormous tragedy, a human tragedy, it was, of course, a climate situation, but it was human error, human ignorance, human blunders, whatever you want to call it, that allow these this massive tragedy to occur. Do you think that there will be the will to take this tragedy and go to Dubai, go to COP28 and say, look, there is a governance issue here. It's something that the West should be taking up, the West should be engaging in. Do you think that could happen at COP28 or is it going to be yet another controlled environment after all happening in one of the most uh, surveilled countries in the world? I would put it to the latter, unfortunately. I don't think this is going to be the, the glimmering of shining hope. I think it's a, I think it, you have to be optimistic with everything in life. Um, but 
I'm not optimistic that change will come from COP28. I mean, Libya's disaster, you're right, it's a grim reminder that, that climate change is not this distant threat. It's knocking at our doors in North Africa. And we have a very unique geographical challenge in Libya. We have, you know, uh, natural aquifers that are being destroyed by man-made intervention and negligence um, of, of mismanaging the, 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 the natural aquifers and pouring uh, sea salt and seawater into them. We have uh, obviously a, a, a growing demand on, on Libya's oil and gas uh, at a time when Libya is supposed to be meeting its, its, its climate goals. I mean, there is a, a hidden hypocrisy in all of this because the Western world often says, what are you doing and what are you doing in the Arab world you know, on a Monday to, to fight the climate change? And then on the Tuesday, they say, can you pump some more oil for us? Because, you know, we've been throttled by Russia. So they also have mm-hmm. to help ensure this change. But that change is not going to come from these structures. Authoritarian and particularly military authoritarian rule, whether they're self-styled militaries or family dynasties or whatever else, what is really important about them is they don't have the culture of give and take. They don't have a culture of listening to the experts. They don't have a culture of opening the door and listening to the wisest person in the room. This is something that is anathema to them. They have a culture of yes, sir, no, sir, and that's it. You know, and, and so I don't think that much of this will change, and I think it needs to, because Libya's predicament today could be, well, it could be another nation's tomorrow. And I mean, in COP28, it needs to internalise how important this is going to be for, you know, not only for the, the, the international community in fighting this, but at a holistic level to understand that they need to have a governance change so that the experts in Libya, when they warn of these things, they're listened to. When the agricultural disasters that are happening across Libya with the, the natural aquifers and, and drinking water becoming ever more scarce with rainfall, despite what happened over the last few days, you know, and uh, the last week, rainfall in Libya has been, you know, gradually receding. Um, for the last decade. And I think there's going to be a very unique challenge for countries like Libya because they don't have the ability, they don't have the technology, they don't have the uh, infrastructure and investments to be able to get themselves out of this by 2030 or 2040 or even 2050. How do they move to a post-oil world? They haven't been able to invest their money smartly enough. It's going to be a disaster when the oil runs out in Libya. But we might even be in a disaster before that because the money has already been put $260 billion over the last decade has been spent. And I guarantee you, you cannot find me a single foreign journalist, Libyan politician, Libya analyst, or, uh, you know, any Libyan from any walk of life that could tell you where that money's been spent. I I mean, only the bombs and the bullets tell the stories here because they never ran out of them when they were, when they were funding these wars, they never ran out of the bombs and bullets, but regretfully they ran out of, you know, water and, milk for babies and they run out of shelter for temporary shelter for the people of Darna. It's, it's astonishing. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a, it's a terrible tragedy for the Libyan people, but it's a tragedy that the world needs to embrace uh, the Western world in particular, the, the global North needs to engage in a meaningful way and needs to challenge uh, this, this, what would you call it? Uh, blanket support for the people like the Haftars. Uh, it's 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 extremely dangerous and 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 very very disturbing. Uh, Hannes, I I thank you for for taking the time uh, to talk to me. I know it's a very difficult time for for every Libyan. So I really appreciate uh, your thoughts and your time. 
Thank you for making the time, Bill. I appreciate the conversation and thank you for casting a light on uh, on the situation. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Anas Algomati, Director General of the Sadek Institute. The situation in Libya is desperate. Please consider making a donation to support the Libyan people. The British Red Cross and UNICEF are just two of several organizations accepting donations. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 175,000 times in countries right around the world. We may have noticed we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. On our website, ArabDigest.org, you can find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts and commentators, contributors like Anas. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of more than 180 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.